Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. There's a Japanese village called Nagoro, and it's very similar to a lot of rural Japanese villages, except for one small difference. It's populated with life-sized dolls. These dolls are the creation of Ayano Tsukimi, a 71-year-old woman and one of only 27 residents, human residents, of Nagoro. Now, when Tsukimi was young, her village had hundreds of people in it. But as the younger generation moved away and the older generation passed away, the population began to dwindle. So about 17 years ago, Tsukimi decided to repopulate her villages with these dolls. Every time someone would move or die, she would create a doll in their likeness and place it in a location that was important to them. And so far, she's made over 400 of these dolls. Now, whether you are inspired by her actions or a little bit creeped out, they do serve to remind us that loss is an inevitable, painful reality of our sin-broken lives. Several weeks ago, we began a series of messages on how sin breaks our souls, but God makes us whole. See, sin has a destructive impact on us both inside and out. And one of the consequences of sin is loss. And that loss comes in many different forms. Loss of a job, a loss of a dream, a loss of a relationship, a loss of a loved one. And all of us, all of us experience loss in some form because loss is an inevitable, painful reality of our sin-broken lives. And so then, how does God make us whole? How does God heal us from loss? Well, to answer that question, we're going to take a look at one final healing miracle of Jesus. It's found in Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 11. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up or turn on your devices, launch the app, flip over to Luke 7, starting with verse 11. This is a story about a woman who loses everything only to have it restored. Luke 7, verse 11. And the Bible reads, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. Now picture this. Jesus approaches the city of Nain, and he has this huge crowd around him. Now, ever since word got out that he could heal the sick, people just flocked to him. So every day, that following became larger and larger. These are the poor and the destitute, the, the sick and the hurting, the 
the disillusioned and the disenfranchised. These are the people that society has left behind. But in Jesus, they find a reason to hope again. Every day they experience miracles. Every day they experience a fullness of life that they had never known before. And so as this caravan of life approaches the city, it meets another caravan coming out of the city, the caravan of loss. And watch what happens when the caravan of life collides with the caravan of loss. Verse 12. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. There is immense pain in this verse. You know, I can't imagine the devastation of losing a child. I pray I never will. But I know that many have. Some of you in this room, or some of you joining us through the broadcast, may be intimately familiar with this pain that no parent should ever have to feel. You know, all loss hurts, but there's something about losing a child that feels unnatural. You know, children are our hope for the future, and when we lose a child, it feels like that future has been stolen away. Gerald Sitzer is a professor at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. And in his book, A Grace Disguised, he describes of how he was, as a young parent, driving a minivan when it was struck by a drunk driver. In his car with him was his mother, his wife, and his young daughter. And they were all killed. In that moment, he lost three generations of family members. And this is how he describes living with that loss. I felt like I was staring at the stump of a huge tree that had been cut down in my backyard. That stump, which sat all alone, kept reminding me of the beloved tree I had lost. I could think of nothing but that tree. Every time I looked out the window, all I could see was that stump. Although he had survived the car crash, it felt like his life was over. And all that remained was that stump, just a reminder of what had been, what could have been. But for this woman, it was even worse because she was not just a woman who had lost a child. She was a widow who had lost her only son. And in that society, being a sonless widow was very difficult. See, women were expected to stay at home and care for their families while the husbands went out and, and earned a living. And so even women of stature were rarely seen outside of their homes. They didn't, most didn't even do their own grocery shopping, which if you've ever had to fight through the crowds at Costco, you might not think that's a bad idea. But it did keep them fairly dependent on the men in their lives. So what this woman is facing is not just is not just the devastation of losing her child. It's the destitution of not being able to survive. She probably had no marketable skills, no way to earn a living. So her only way forward would be to either find another man to support her or to live the rest of her life off the charity of others. That's what she was facing, that hopelessness, 
that loss is what she is going through in this story. See, all of a sudden, she had gone from being a somebody to a nobody. All her dreams, all her hopes, her life was gone. So even though it was her son being buried that day, it must have felt like she was the one who lost her life. And I want to pause here for a moment and talk a little bit about grief. Because here in America, many of us are uncomfortable with grief. And so we don't relate well with grieving people. We don't know how to connect with them. There's an online magazine called Slate, and it surveyed its readers, asked them to respond to a survey on loss and grief. And about 10,000 people responded to this. It must have struck a nerve. And what they discovered, what they discovered about loss and grief is that people, people who are mourning just have a hard time getting support from the people that are around them. Take a look. This is their summary. The results were divided, but they confirmed that interacting with others is generally awkward at best and painful and isolating at worst. Only about 7% felt that it was completely true that they moved on easily and had the support they needed to do so. In general, many respondents wanted to explain how uncomfortable, a word that appeared over and over, they felt their grief had made others. As one respondent put it of those around her, they would get tired of my sad mood and need to talk about it and say I was wallowing or I should move on. Another wrote, people are very supportive for the first couple of weeks, but then they move on. It makes you feel guilty to continue to mourn when others are tired of dealing with it. See, most of us, we don't know how to relate to people who are grieving because grief makes us uncomfortable. And that discomfort with grief overflows into our theology. Dr. Glenn Pemberton, a professor at Abilene College, did a study of Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals to discover how many of the hymns deal with the themes of lament and loss. And what he discovered was that only 15% of the hymns deal with the theme of lament and loss, while 85% deal with celebration and triumph. Now, 15%, that may not sound bad until you compare that with the Psalms, which was the songbook of the ancient followers of God. And what you see in the Psalms is that 40% of the Psalms deal with lament and loss. Almost half of the Psalms deal with those themes. See, the Bible does not shy away from these themes. Throughout Scripture, the followers of God openly express their, their grief, their sorrow, their anger towards God. There's even a whole book of the Bible that deals with mourning loss. It's called Lamentations. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I wonder how many of us, how long it's been since any of us used the book of Lamentations for our own personal devotional reading. A year? Two years? Never? See, we're so uncomfortable with grief that even when we're the ones grieving, we have a difficult time expressing that grief to God. Deep down inside, some of us may even believe that expressing grief shows a lack of faith, 
shows a lack of gratitude for God's blessings. But Jesus doesn't feel that way. Just watch how he relates with this grieving woman. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. Notice that Jesus doesn't shy away from this grieving woman. Instead, Luke tells us that his first response to her is compassion. His heart goes out to her. See, comfort comes from compassion. This woman's healing begins when Jesus recognizes her grief. See, there is something healing about having someone acknowledge our grief. That's why author Victoria Alexander writes, there are three needs of the griever, to find the words for the loss, to say the words aloud, and to know that the words have been heard. There is something about expressing our grief and having someone acknowledge it that makes it just a tiny bit easier to bear. It's almost like they're helping to carry a little bit of that load with us. And it's not really about the words that they say, right? Pastor Rick Warren says that that the deeper the grief, the fewer words should be used to comfort. So it's not really about the words, it's more about the presence, that they are with us, that they embrace us, grief and all, that they do not flinch away from our pain. And that's what Jesus does for this woman. When he's confronted with her grief, he doesn't recoil. He doesn't rationalize. He recognizes her grief. But he doesn't stop there. He continues the healing process in verse 13. It says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier, and they were were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. Now, everything that Jesus does here initially seems wrong, right? He interrupts the funeral procession, which you just don't do. And then he tells this grieving mother not to cry, which I think is the last thing that you should tell a mother is to stop crying. You know, it's probably, it, it probably ranks in the top three of the most awkward things that Jesus could have said in that moment, along with, uh, well, at least you have your health, and uh, think of all the money that you'll save on, on birthday presents each year. Just terrible. And yet Jesus, he interrupts this procession, he tells the woman not to cry, and then he touches the beer, which... The Bible doesn't say this, but I just assume there was an audible gasp from the congregation, from the people, the crowd that was around, around him. Because touching the funeral bier was against, it was against Jewish law and Jewish custom. So why does Jesus do this? Why does he interrupt this funeral? Here's why. Jesus knew something this woman did not. He knew that her grief had an expiration date. He knew that in a few moments that he would resurrect her son. That the life she had lost, he would now restore. Look at verse 14. It reads, He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. 
See, Jesus could interrupt her grief because he had the power to end her grieving. See, that's the difference between the comfort that we can provide and the comfort that God provides because God has the power to restore our losses. So Jesus makes this woman whole by first recognizing her grief and then restoring her loss. So what does that mean for us? Because it's not like Jesus walks around returning back to everyone immediately all that they have lost, right? Even when he was on this earth, he didn't restore everyone's loss. You know, he didn't restore every blind man's sight. He didn't restore every person's job. He didn't restore every person their loved one. And just imagine if he had. Imagine if he had walked out and emptied all the cemeteries in Israel, just brought everybody back to life. All of a sudden, you'd have millions of very confused people wandering around. And putting the political and the military repercussions aside for a moment, the sheer overpopulation alone would have destroyed that economy. See, miracles by themselves are not a final solution to the world's problems. Even this miracle, even this miracle, as amazing as it was, didn't end all of these, this woman's problems. She would still be a widow. She would still have a difficult life. And she and her son would still eventually die. Miracles are just a temporary solution. But what they do provide is a glimpse into what is to come. Stephen DeWitt, in his book, Eyes Wide Open, writes, This world and its history are prelude and foretaste. All the sunrises and sunsets, symphonies and rock concerts, feasts and friendships are but whispers. They are a prologue to a grander story and even better place. Only there it will never end. Eventually, God will restore our losses. So like this woman, our grief has an expiration date. We may not get the same miracle, but we have the same hope. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't grieve. That doesn't mean that our grief doesn't hurt. All it means is at some point, that grief will end. At some point, our loss will be restored. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes to the grieving Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Because God will eventually restore our losses, we know our grief has an expiration date. So God makes us whole the same way that he made that woman whole by recognizing our grief and restoring our loss. And we've had more than our fair share of losses over this past year. The pandemic has touched all of our lives. We can all think of someone who has lost a job, someone who has lost a relationship, someone who has lost their life. 
And when we come face to face with that grief, all we want to do is cry out, God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. My, my business was not supposed to fail. My relationship was not supposed to end. My husband was not supposed to die. So part of what it means to heal is to actually do that, to lament our losses to God. That's the first step towards healing, to cry out our unfiltered grief to God. And the amazing thing is that God is not overwhelmed by our grief. He is not offended by our anger. He can handle our honesty. In fact, he invites it. I mean, just look at the Psalms. They're filled with the raw emotions of people. Words of pain, like in Psalm chapter 6, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Words of abandonment. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Words of anger. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Come on. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. Amen. Anybody else find it strange that this was included in the songbook of the ancient followers of God? These words of anger. Could you imagine singing this in a worship service, you know, putting it to music? This is, these are the raw emotions. And God, God invites us to share. As strange as it sounds, God invites us to share our grief to, with him, even in song, because he understands that healing begins with lamenting our loss to him. And that, can, that lamenting can be as simple as, as completing the sentence, God, I wish. God, I wish I hadn't lost that job. God, I wish she hadn't left. God, I wish he hadn't died. God, I wish. What's your loss? Begin healing by lamenting your loss to God. And then, hold on to hope. That's the next step in this healing process. Hold on to hope. Because we know that God doesn't only, he doesn't only recognize our grief, he also restores our loss. So our grief has an expiration date. So we can hold on to hope, even if things don't work as according to plan. We can hold on to hope, even if God does something that we don't understand. We can hold on to hope, even if our hearts are breaking, because God is still the same God who resurrected the widow's son all those years ago in a city called Nain. So we lament, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Instead, we hold on to hope, even in the midst of pain, because the best is yet to come. Several years ago, I, I read a story about a woman who was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And in preparation for her funeral, she asked her pastor to come over and plan it with her. And in that process, she made a very unusual request. She asked to be buried 
with a fork. And when her pastor asked her why, this was her response. When I was a little girl, my favorite potlucks were the ones where they told us to keep our forks after we were through with the main course. Do you know why? Because it meant that there was dessert coming, a cake, a brownie, maybe even some hot apple pie a la mode. It let me know that the best part was yet to come. She continues, when people come to my casket and they are weeping over me, I want them to see that fork and be reminded that this isn't the end. One course may be over, but the best is yet to come. See, the challenge that we face as humans is our limited perspective. We're in the middle of our stories, and we can't see the end. We can't see beyond the page we're at. And so when we experience loss, it feels like the end of the story, that there's no more to be written. There's no more to be read. That's what this widow must have felt when she lost her son. But what this miracle shows us is that when we follow God, the story is never over. There's always more to be written. There's always more to be read because the best is yet to come. So on this Memorial Sabbath, where we grieve the losses of the people that we have lost over this past year, let us lament together. Let us express our unfiltered grief to God. But even as we voice our pain, let us hold on to hope, knowing that our grief has an expiration date. So keep your forks. The best is yet to come. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.